Hello, hello, hello listeners, welcome to Super Bailey Bros, season 3, episode 9, just me on my own today, I've got a mega review rundown for you, what did I call it on the feed, the uh, new release marathon or something like that, I'm going to take us through about 10 or 11 films to try and get the Super Bailey Bros up to date, because if you're familiar with the show, then you'll know the last films that we reviewed were Lady Bird and I, Tonya, which are kind of old news now, so I'm going to catch us up with Gringo, You Were Never Really Here, Wonder Wheel, Tomb Raider, Mary Magdalene, the Square, A Wrinkle in Time, Pacific Rim, Uprising, Hunsane, and The Third Murder. Crikey, what a list. I would imagine that many of you guys have seen at least one or two of those films, and in a couple of weeks we will record a normal show, so do get your thoughts in now to superbellybros at gmail.com or at superbellybros on Twitter, because we'd love to feature your thoughts when Phil and I can hobnob about it, and we can have a little bit of a recap uh, about all this stuff. Uh, let me say also at the beginning here, thank you so much to all of those who've got in touch to say they're excited for us about our BBC Radio Oxford show next Monday. Wow, I mean, we are really excited. It's our chance to be presenters on live radio, to talk a little bit of rubbish, hopefully to be funny, hopefully to be interesting, maybe a little bit, and, you know, to go in and out of music with the faders. Isn't that cool? <laughs> so thank you for congratulating us on that. And we want to say again, I really hope, we really hope that you're going to tune in to listen. It's on Easter Monday. That's the 2nd of April. April between 12pm and 2pm we've got a, a big plan for everything we're going to do on the show and as ever it's a mixture of silly stories and anecdotes or jokes that we've come up with but also we're hoping it's going to feature a lot of listener correspondence throughout the show we're going to be saying tell us your thoughts or opinions or your stories on all these different things um, and also we're going to have a phone call we're going to try and chat to a listener live I think I'm calling it uh, the feature that we're having the phone call hashtag problem solved <laughs> where Phil and I uh, try and pull our collective wisdom to solve someone's minor issues we're not tackling the big ones just the little slightly silly or annoying daily problems that come up in life so yeah you guys would play a huge part in that please do tune in on easter monday if you can you can do that online uh, via the bbc iplayer there's a way to listen live if you just search for bbc oxford you'll find it in seconds or of course you can listen on a digital radio or you can listen back uh, via the iplayer after it's all happened but yeah if you can listen live and you can send us some tweets and emails maybe you can be that lucky caller who gets to chat to us on there and have some kind of problem solved that would be so wonderful uh, but that, in many ways, is all by the by for this episode. Get your thoughts in, as we said, superbellybros at gmail.com, at superbellybros on Twitter. Why don't we begin this mega review marathon? Okay, well, let's go from the top to the bottom. First up, it's Gringo. Look, man, you're in some deep water, Harold. Like bankruptcy, Dave. Damn, cash poor? No, I'm saying you're poor, poor. Harold! Tomorrow, you're going to fly to Mexico. What? We want you to hand deliver the weed pill formula to the lab. I know I'm not supposed to touch the minibar, but I'm going to do it. You know, I don't even care anymore. I'm doing it. I'm having the mono. <laughs> What's going on? I've been kidnapped! I am somewhere in Mexico with a gun to my head. What are we, baby? Harold, I'm just going to spit this out. <laughs> We sold a little product to the cartels, but when we cut them off, they got a little angry. <laughs> what the mother? I know a guy. I'll track down dictators if I can find a guy in middle management. What do they want? They want five million. What? Pesos? Dollars? What is that? It's an injectable microchip. Okay. I need to keep tracking. I don't like needles. Give me your... <laughs> 
can't scare me with tales of the big bad cartels. I don't know how things work. Not in Mexico. That's Harold. Harold? Harold? You really believe in God? Of course I believe in God. What kind of person does not believe in God? I guess I kind of do, but not. <laughs> Things are going to start to get better for you. Trust me, I have good instincts. What a strange film this was, listeners. I think if you've seen the poster, and I think probably quite a few people have seen the poster, it looks really strange. It looks like a different film than it is. And, you know, I think the trailers portray it as a different film than it is really as well. And it's really a shame because critical reception was very lukewarm. And a lot of people criticised the writing and just thought, you know, what's the point of this? And I admit, when I went in, I was expecting it to be an annoying screwball comedy that was trying to be the hangover but for drug cartels that sort of thing and it sort of portrays itself a bit like that uh, in the trailers that's what the marketing company seems to be aiming for but what it actually is is more enjoyable i think david ayello playing harold is a really charming and interesting guy who's just trying to play it straight uh, in his life and you actually have more empathy for him than you expect like the trailer likes to play the clips of him screaming in tough situations but you spend way more time with him just trying to figure out what is right it's, there's a bit of a moral maze thing in there what what is right for him to do what is right for him to feel and what is the right path through this mess that he's involved in i really enjoyed charlotte copley in it when uh, he turned up and he you know he's had a bit of a mixed career i his association with neil blomkamp has i think sort of helped and hurt him maybe even in equal measure because he got launched in with district nine and everyone thought wow he's amazing as wickers what a film and then neil blomkamp did elysium and chappie and everyone started to get a bit nervous does this guy only have one film that he can make and but charlotte copley was in free fire that ben wheatley film i reviewed a while ago and i thought he was one of the best things in that and i actually think he really gives a huge dimension to this film that you won't expect based on the trailers because he isn't a comedy character either he's an interesting one who comes in out of left field and gives a bit of dimension and depth to everything that goes on i think joel edgerton is fine he's certainly a convincingly sleazy and yet still slightly charming ceo who knows how to manipulate others i think Charlize theron is brilliant actually as a super tough uh, businesswoman who really knows how to play her own boss against other elements and make sure that she emerges victorious in all situations and we want to say these are awful sleazy people but actually the way that they talk and the kind of motivations i i think are far more representative of what a lot of people's experience of, of the workplace is like so i thought despite how strange a film it is with all its drug cartel links i actually thought it was quite believable and, and really really interesting so you know I, on the whole it's a thumbs up for me i, I think it's worth mentioning that is directed by Nash Edgerton, who is absolutely Joel Edgerton's brother, and he's quite new to it. So I think, you know, in other hands, the film might have just been a, a little bit more dynamic, certainly with its pacing and a little bit less pedestrian, because the way that he's directed it, it gives a lot of space to the characters, and you spend a lot of time with them. There are quite long scenes where they'll talk or think, and we get to see their reactions, and... But actually, you know what? I, I quite like that the film took its time. It, it felt really fresh and really unique uh, in this, uh, what you're used to in cinema. And it doesn't really neatly fit a genre. So 
I think that is partly down to Nash Edgerton. I don't know whether that's because of his inexperience and really he should have made it pacier or because actually he was applying some artistic flair and thought he wanted to do something different. So yeah, like I say, broadly a thumbs up from me. Don't expect Quentin Tarantino type film. Uh, don't expect like a Guy Ritchie type film either. Instead, you know, expect to be challenged and expect to be thoughtful and, you know, really enjoy David Yellowo nailing it, I think, as Harold. Uh, yeah. So there you go. There's one review down. How about that? Let's do You Were Never Really Here. Where do you spend your time? What do you do? All day long. It's done. Man called. Man wants to see you. State Senator Albert Vato. He doesn't want to get the cops involved. Wants to meet you. You have kids, Joe. Nina. Her name is Nina. 235 East 31st Street. I've heard of these places. If she's there, I'll get her. Cleary said you were brutal. I can be. Look, you see this girl? She inside? Security. How many are there? Close your eyes. New York State Senator has been found dead in the parents' side. Yes, very much at the other end of the spectrum. Well, Lynn Ramsey directed We Need to Talk About Kevin, and that was a long time ago now, I think 2011, and this is only her second uh, big feature film project. Right when We Need to Talk About Kevin was released, people were saying, well, here is someone you've just got to watch because... This is an incredibly relevant film with a, an essential message and it has a lot of power and very telling performances and very sort of snappy, I heard someone describe it as skeletal filmmaking so that it's, you know, you really get to see the heart of it very fast. There's very little fat to trim or anything like that. And the same is true again for You Were Never Really Here. Um, yes, she's adapted as Jonathan Ames or Jonathan Amos, I don't know how to pronounce his name, short story. Joaquin Phoenix stars as a war veteran who's got PTSD. He's also been in the B, um, I was going to call it the BFI then the FBI uh, and he was handling awful crime he was involved in trying to break people trafficking rings and he's seen so much terrible stuff that he's completely withdrawn he's become a shell of a person he's supporting his mum who's at home in I think the early stages of dementia and the way that he does that is by taking on private contracts to go and rescue often individual young girls from awful terrible criminal situations that they've ended up with but because it's all private privately done the police don't get involved he takes a big payout and it's all slightly complex and dark and miserable um and that that is how the film goes we see it opens with him coming back from one of these jobs he takes on a new one and then the entire rest of the film is how that next job goes and the fallout from it i found it absolutely gripping and incredibly tense very uncomfortable but finely tuned so we talked about I, Tonya being really well balanced because it's about horrible things and yet uh, it's edited in such a way that the pace and the emotion allows you to sort of detach yourself from it and view things in a slightly different more objective way and I think that is to a certain extent true here 
Although, be warned, it really does rub your nose in incredibly unpleasant things and you're going to have to deal with that if you want to watch it. But the thing that sort of kept me going, because I, 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 I'm a bit of a wimp when it comes to films, but the thing that really kept me going is that it's obvious that the entire goal of the screenplay here is searching for that tiny seed of truth and joy and hope in the world, despite um, a film that is entirely set within the darkest, most underground things you can imagine in a city. So bear that in mind when you watch it. And it, if you can do that, then actually th- there are odd moments of very dark humour in the film. I mean, even the fact that Joaquin Phoenix's guy, his weapon of choice is a hammer, and, and the way that that gets used, and the sort of very straight-down-the-line bleak way that he interacts with other people, that there is comedy in it, while at the same time there's intense darkness in it, there's flashbacks for abuse that he suffered and things that he's seen in his job that come out of nowhere and really shock you uh, while you're just in the grip of something, some other kind of scene. And she maintains this really uneasy juxtaposition between fine details and moments of peace, like when he crushes a tiny jelly bean in his hands and watch the sugar crystallise and crumble away, and then these big wide shots of awful action or, or things happening in the street. And... She does everything so expertly to keep you off kilter and yet completely engrossed. I was really impressed by it. Hardly any script and hardly any script needed either because Joaquin Phoenix's performance is a towering one. He does an amazing job of communicating with his expressions, his physicality, his eyes, uh, just the way he works within the frame as well. Uh, you know, and that, that's all to Lynn Ramsey and you really get a sense of his turmoil. So I do recommend it, but just be aware what you're letting yourself in for. Uh, I thought it was very, very powerful and incredibly impressive. All right, number two done. Next up on the list is Wonder Wheel. Coney Island, 1950s. The beach, the boardwalk. I work here on base seven. Enter Carolina. Excuse me, do you know if Jenny's here? I'm Jenny. I'm Humpty's daughter. Here's wife. Is he gonna be surprised? I'm marked. They can kill me. That's what you get when you marry a gangster. Uh, I gotta have a drink. No, Humpty, you've been good. Damn it! This, you can't be out here right now. We're expecting lightning storms. When you're married to a man who got rich putting people's feet in cement, you probably never had to do a dish. Your wife don't like to go fishing anymore, Humpty. She made like she liked it. To get me on the hook, I was the fish. You know she's a marked woman. Did she move on? All the bodies are buried. Did he, did he kiss you? Why are you getting so heated? I'm gonna find My head is pounding. Everything's coming apart. You look a little crazy to me. When it comes to love, we often turn out to be our own worst enemy. I know what it is you did. Oh, don't you think you're being a little melodramatic? Well, is it brave or is it foolish or is it just circumstances of scheduling that mean these guys have to put out a Woody Allen film uh, at a time when, you know, you don't want to be putting out a Woody Allen film. But there it is. That's the fact of it. Kate Winslet is, as you will have heard in the trailer there, a frustrated housewife. She's had a a tough life before. She married this guy, Humpty, uh, played by Jim Belushi. Very good, Jim Belushi. And is struggling to enjoy her life on Coney Island as a waitress. 
She's consumed by these ideas that she could have and perhaps should have been an actress and she's dealing with a son who's becoming a pyromaniac and is obviously suffering from the kind of attitudes of his parents and all that sort of thing. And then when Juno Temple, who's Humpty's estranged daughter, turns up and she'd been wrapped up in the mob and there was bad blood between them, all that sort of stuff, then Kate Winslet feels even more out on the sidelines and even more frustrated when she sees how sort of pretty and successful and charming Juno Temple is, despite the fact that she appears to have made bad decisions. And it's all, you know, the water is muddied even further when charming man Justin Timberlake playing a lifeguard here called Mickey turns up and and, and charms both Juno Temple and Kate Winslet. So I was I thought it was well shot. I think Coney Island looked really beautiful and it was very evocative. I thought I was impressed by the restrained editing, which really gives it a theatrical quality because you have incredibly long sequences where the camera moves around, especially in uh, Jim Belushi and Kate Winslet's home, which is very open plan. And you'll sort of drift from literally kitchen sink drama uh, to something more dramatic around a dinner table or in a room. And there's a very clever use of space, a very limited range of locations. I suspect it would actually do rather well uh, on stage if it was ever done. But the, the big question on top of that is, you know, is it is it worth it? Is this story worth it? Or is it, which, you know, and the facts would back this up, Woody Allen fulfilling the terms of his contract because he has to make these films. He's got to get them done for Amazon Studios. And this does feel like just a film that he could make. And he was lucky to cast Kate Winslet, who gives a brilliant performance, really nuanced and interesting and compelling. Gina Temple and Justin Timberlake, Jim Belushi, wonderful performances, but in a story that doesn't really dig very deep it doesn't really challenge. It just plays with exactly the same themes Woody Allen has explored in the entire course of his career. It's all about relationships and the human heart being fickle and whether we can act with fidelity and to be loyal and truthful and loving, whether we can place others above ourselves or whether we are to be consumed by jealousy. And one of the big problems lots of people have picked up on, and you know, I think it's fair enough, is that given uh, what Woody Allen is currently being discussed for, it seems a very odd and perhaps even arrogant, irritating move for him to appear to reference real things in his life within this film. And some people are drawing uh, comparisons between Kate Winslet's character and Mia Farrow. I've got nothing to say on that. You know, make up your own minds. But it does seem irritating that he's willing to play around uh, with facts and, well, who knows what. So and I think that that cannot help but bring a very sour taste to the film, despite the wonderful performers and performances on offer. So for me, I thought it was classic Woody Allen, certainly not a bad film. Go and watch it if you like that kind of tight-knit family drama with very clever scripting and very nice, beautiful visuals as well. But not entirely recommended, I wouldn't say. Next up, Tomb Raider. What's your name? Laura. Surname? Croft. Laura, your father's gone. You can pick up where he left off. I see so much of him in you. Brilliant. Hello, Sprout. If you're listening to this, then I must be dead. I found something. A tomb called the Mother of Death. If Trinity succeeds, our world is in danger. Promise me you will stop them. I promise. I think I know where my dad went. That's right in the middle of the Devil's Sea. It will be an adventure. Death is not an adventure. 
shouldn't have come here. But I'm glad that you did. What do you know about my father? Now I see the likeness to recklessness. Close the tomb once and for all. The fate of humanity is now in your hands. Can't be too careful these days. The world has gone bloody mad. I'll take two. <laughs> well, if you've been listening for a while, you might remember that we did a video game special where we talked about the problem that video game adaptations always have. And I think that boils down to the fact that it's being translated twice. So a video game has a story, but that story has to be translated through the mechanics of a game so that someone can play it. So you're already one step removed from the characters and the story because you've got to bear in mind the gameplay mechanics. So then if you're doing a film, then it's two steps removed because you've got to get the story through the gameplay and then through the lens of the gameplay, extrapolate it again and turn it into a film. So there's something really weird about the art form and I think that's why we've never really seen a successful uh, video game adaptation. I mean, just think about Super Mario Brothers, right? Or even the Resident Evil films. Always enjoyable in a schlocky kind of, they're terrible, so terrible you can laugh at them way. But have they ever hit the big time? And a lot of people are really hoping that they will this time because it's Alicia Vikander, Oscar nominated. Alicia Vikander, actress everyone loves to see in all kinds of films, got huge amounts of range, buckets of it. I saw her in a film, The Light Between Oceans, and she was brilliant and unhinged in that. Obviously, she's done Ex Machina. I think everyone actually has a lot of reason to hope that she'll bring something special to the character of Lara Croft. You know, last played by Angelina Jolie. And let's just say there was a very obvious reason and obvious thing they wanted to emphasize with that particular thing that was very tied to how the games were there's been a big shift in the games and a big shift in public opinion and perception and everything and now Alicia Vikander is the sort of polar opposite of that and I think that's a great thing you know her physicality is good you can see that she's physically fit and strong and she doesn't immediately turn out to be amazing she has to learn how to survive with her uh, sort of uh, intelligence but also her risk-taking personality you know we see her at the beginning doing this bike chase thing through urban streets and she's amazing on a BMX and all that sort of stuff uh, so I liked her casting <laughs> all except for the fact that her English accent is just awful if you've ever seen Arrested Development, then you might remember a series where Charlize Theron actually turns up and plays an apparently English woman, and her accent is just laughable. But you get away with it because it's a comedy series. But that is Alicia Vikander's accent in a very, very serious film that's trying to make the video game films a serious uh, property. And it was so annoying because not only did she sound ridiculous, she also sounded boring. It seemed to kill all the dynamic and emotional range in her performance so that it threw everything off kilter. You couldn't really appreciate uh, the physicality and the expressions and just the acting, basically, because it was always brought back down to screeching earth or whatever the phrase is by this terrible accent. And it was obvious, oh, this is an actor doing a thing. And that was so annoying. And it, I felt exactly the same way about the CGI that gets used. Because, you know, the plot begins, uh, Dominic West terribly plays and quite funnily plays her estranged father. He's gone away for seven years. Everyone thinks he's missing. He's a billionaire. The company want her to take over the company, but she still wants to find out what happened to her father. So when she gets a clue, she uh, drives off to an island uh, in a boat and everything sort of happens from there. You know, it's not a complicated plot. I'm sure you can piece it together even from the trailer. But, of course, when she gets there, we get a lot of 
action scenes. There's a bit of stealth and espionage and survival, which is very much what the games are about. So I hear a lot of climbing as well. I could totally hear uh, the voice of a Square Enix executive saying, can we get a little bit more climbing in there, please? That'd be great. It's a big part of the gameplay, blah, 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 blah. Um, but also stunts and uh, daring escapes. And one of the big ones, which is all over the trailer, was this big rusty plane, which is on a waterfall. And she jumps across a wing and she climbs around it. And that scene in the film is very extended. And you can tell they had a lot of creative ideas about what to do with it. But man, I I don't think the CGI is bad. It's just obvious. And I don't it didn't matter to me. I thought, well, I know that's a that's a computer plane. Nothing of interest is gonna happen. And also Lara Croft is the star of a brand new franchise film. I'm not really worried that she's gonna die or have something terrible happen to her. And so in time and time again, these moments that are supposed to be tough, and you know, in a video game, there is the very real threat that your character dies and you have to do the whole thing again. In a film, not so much. And there wasn't tension. There was just, it just felt a little bit embarrassing, to be perfectly honest. It it just didn't work and I didn't believe it. And I was so, so, so annoyed to have to say that. Uh, the, the only bright spot really for me was Walton Goggins, who was in The Hateful Eight recently. And he plays the nemesis, really, in this film. I think he plays him brilliantly. And we're lucky that he commits to the role in the way that he does, because it, it makes the film seem more credible than it really is. If, for example, you had the opposite of Dominic West, so someone who was acting the way Dominic West does as a sort of joke character, it's really funny when he turns up with his old man hair, trust me. If you had that as the bad guy as well, then we'd all be in a lot more trouble and the film would be laughed at even more than it is. So all in all, a disappointment. Um, and I, I, I think we're definitely getting another one because there's too much money invested. I think it's done quite well at the box office. But it's still, Alicia Vikander is the middle of the film. So if she can figure out how to improve her voice work so that her performance feels more realistic, then I'm on board. If not, I think it's got a big problem. But there we are. Right, let's have Mary Magdalene. Mary! You brought shame on our family. There's something unnatural inside you. Your family says you grapple with the demon. If there's a demon in me, it's always been there. There are no demons here. Mary of Magdala? She will do God's will. Why shouldn't she follow me? People will judge us. Are we so different from men? You must teach us different things. <laughs> Sometimes it's as if I'm not here at all. Is that what it feels like to be one with God? No one has ever asked me how it feels. The women are too afraid to be baptized with the men. Go to them. Be my hands. It's not right that he has raised you up to lead us. You love my son, don't you? You must prepare yourself like me. For what? To lose him. God's kingdom is not to be bought and sold! We need to take him away from here. Whatever happens now, it's what God has asked of him. Mary, you are my witness. Change as we change. 
I will not be silent. I will be heard. Right, well, Garth Davis directed Lion, which, if you have been listening for a while, you'll know was a film that, despite being nominated for six Oscars, Phil did not take kindly to. As much as we love Deb Patel, I think Phil basically thought that the film ended up being a how-to guide for Google Maps and really lacked the drama and the tension required to make it a compelling film. And that's where our infamous rewards category for best use of felt-tip pens or markers comes from, with the scene where he goes and buys some uh, some highlighters from a newsagent. I don't know why, for added tension maybe? Who knows? It sounds like a genuinely fascinating true story, but the film maybe didn't match up. Uh, to the reality of that story. So what he's done now, and I'm sure he's being greenlit for lots of projects because he was involved in Lion, despite the fact that Best Director was not one of the things it was nominated for, he's been given a, a big budget biblical film to move on to next, which doesn't make much sense to me. We get Rooney Mara playing Mary Magdalene, and, you know, there's no spoiler, really, to say that the film's stated goal is to sort of recover Mary Magdalene's reputation. She is a, f- a figure in the Bible and in lots of other texts as well. And I think famously, Pope Gregory I, this is according to the film and Wikipedia, as far as I can tell, uh, called her a prostitute, basically, uh, or a redeemed prostitute. And the filmmakers feel this is a big injustice, given that that's not how she's referred to in the Bible, certainly. And they feel this is an opportunity to recover uh, her legacy or, or something along those lines. It does follow quite closely to the Gospel of Mary, which is an apocryphal text, uh, something I looked up, which basically places Mary as the most important apostle, uh, really, amongst those 12. If you're familiar with those guys, you know, Simon, Peter and John and all those guys. This gospel said that Mary was the most important and perhaps the person who understood Jesus the best. But because she was a woman, she didn't really get the sort of respect and prominence that she deserved. And so you can see, especially with everything going on in the world right now, this, you know, why not? This is a good chance to bring a, a historical figure who maybe has been maligned or kept in the shadows into prominence so that people can be inspired by her good idea terrible film i've got to be honest i garth davis has made this so boring and monotone it's a genuine trial to watch and the performance he gets out of joaquin phoenix who let's not forget has just done you and never really here where his sort of burning intensity drives the film and is incredible to watch but that he plays Jesus Christ in this film and he's like a hipster Jesus. He speaks in half sentences and then appears to get so lost in how deep his inserts are that he can't keep speaking. So it's no wonder that people are confused about what he's trying to say because he just never bothers finishing his sentences. You know, I half expected him to do his hair up in a man bun halfway through and if any spectacles were invented, he'd be wearing horn-rimmed ones, right? You know, what was the deal with that? Um, I thought uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor actually emerges with his honour completely intact because he does quite a good job as Simon Peter in the film. He manages to make him seem believably conflicted but incredibly passionate and committed to everything he's doing and I thought he anchored the film and his scenes with Rini Mara were some of the better ones but of course you know it's all about Mary and Rini Mara's performance as Mary I don't know I mean I, I kind of want to lay this all at the feet of Garth Davis because Rini Mara is a really talented actress we know this already we've seen her in so many things great in a social network she introduced her to loads and loads of people but in this film she just makes doe eyes and pouts the whole time and that's basically all she does She has an otherworldly, zen-like nature to her that is just boring to watch. And I get that they're trying to imply she has 
sort of a spiritual maturity and depth that other people can only aspire to but it's just not good to watch and there are so many scenes that are transparently trying to display her virtues that in, instead it just kind of comes we get it i got that in the last scene why are we having this again I mean, that doesn't take away the fact that, you know, I thought the hillsides, let's say, were shot incredibly and it was, it was alternately barren and really interesting to look at. And I don't think I've ever seen a sort of biblical epic shot in that kind of way and with that kind of bleached out colour palette. Very, very interesting. And I thought at the beginning, I, I wasn't quite sure which way it's going to go because they show Mary with her family and she doesn't want to get married to someone and they think she's all weird because of that. They try and drive demons out of her through a horrible thing using river water and stuff. And, and at that point, I kind of thought, wow, this is, you know, this is pushing things and I wonder where it's going to go. But it does just become really, really tedious. And, you know, it follows the pattern you, you'll all expect. And there are even moments where Mary pitched herself just floating around in water. The, the, I thought the level of symbolism, the variance of tone, i.e. no variance of tone, was boring to watch and kind of slightly amateurish as far as direction was concerned. But, you know, what do you think? Tell me what you think. Did you find it moving? Did you find it empowering? And at this point, <laughs> I'm going to take a bit of a break. Um, we'll talk about something else other than films. And then I'll come back and do the last five. And uh, we're doing okay, aren't we? This is okay. I hope so. Uh, email me, superbellybros at gmail.com or at superbellybros on Twitter with your thoughts on those last five films. I was going to do some emails and tweets, but actually I just don't think I can without uh, Phil here. We need his incisive comments, don't you think? That's what I think anyway. So instead, I'm just going to do a tiny, tiny what we've been watching fake one for Sleepless in Seattle, which Judith and I saw uh, a couple of nights ago. Judith uh, defied the title by falling asleep many times, although I guess we're not in Seattle. Uh, to be expected is what happens after a long weekend. But I was really curious about it because I like Nora Ephron, I like Rob Reiner as well, and big fan of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in their prime, certainly. And I know a lot of people really love this film, but I think I've only seen it twice now. And the last time was ages ago, so I kind of wanted to keep up. I'm not going to play the trailer here, so have a little look on YouTube. But the main thing I came away thinking was, you know, it's shot really beautifully and it's very cosy, lots of fairy lights around. And it is one of those films that makes you feel very, you know, it's great to watch wrapped up in a blanket. Let's put it that way. Lovely soundtrack as well. I absolutely love the Jimmy Durante love songs. Uh, that particular one makes someone happy. Oh, I love it. There's a particular chord change in it that brings tears to my eyes every time. But the overwhelming thing I thought was that, you know, you just couldn't make this film today. It's not that old. It's 1993, I think. But basically the entire film revolves around the apparent difference between men and women and how they handle life and relationships and romance and everything else. And almost all of the comedy revolves around that. Uh, almost all of the situations are to do with that. And it's used to justify bizarre things that don't make any sense out of context. And I think, you know, Phil's talked before and we've chatted a bit about the death of the rom-com. And I wonder whether the rom-com just has to reinvent itself because I really don't think you can make those kind of jokes anymore or base a film on it. And kind of for good reason as well. But it does make me wonder what's left. And I think perhaps that's why what we're getting these strange films. Oh, one I've missed off the list is Game Night, uh, where we get... Instead of it being a romance like that, it's more something that's very specific. So I, I saw Love, Simon quite recently, really interesting film that I'll be reviewing in a couple of weeks. And that's obviously going for a mainstream high school gay romance. 
And, you know, despite the fact that that is in many ways a kind of a romantic story, it's not really a comedy, although it is funny, it's more dramatic, and it's got a big coming out narrative alongside the coming of age thing as well. So there is something different about that one. Game Night is more about a married couple and their friends trying to liven up their life while things go a bit wrong, which I just didn't think was very funny. Uh, We had Date Night, do you remember that, with Steve Carell and Tina Fey? And then the big sick, of course, Kumail Nanjiani's film, which isn't just about a relationship, but actually it's about overcoming uh, racial prejudice, perhaps, and the differences there, but also there's illness and things. So it seems like we're moving a lot away from sort of romance element and much more towards some kind of situational aspect that allows us to look at people who might fall in love or something else because it feels like culture is too raw at the moment to dip into romance because perhaps there's a a lack of clarity about what it looks like now back in the early 90s you could get away with all sorts of stereotypes and cliches and everyone can laugh and say that's so true men are from mars women are from venus but while we're working hard to actually challenge that we did maybe we just haven't landed yet so anyway that's just a thought that spun into my mind and i'm curious to know what you think you know do you do you still like sleepless in seattle when you watch it do you feel a bit awkward when uh tom hanks and uh what's his face odo from star trek deep space nine <laughs> are laughing at odo's wife because she finds a film emotional and it's called a chick movie and stuff like do you, or do you find that annoying or do you think it's just a product of the 90s blah 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 blah. i think you know what i'm saying don't you this is all off the top of my head uh send your thoughts in superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on twitter and i guess it's time for me to dive into the second half last five films of the marathon here we go <laughs> Okay, okay, if I was an athlete, I'd be uh, dumping loads of electrolyte-filled water slash Lucasade down the gullet right now. But I'm not. Instead, I'm just going to power through. Let's keep going with The Square. What are the biggest challenges in running a museum? We're a museum of modern and contemporary art, so we need to present art that is the art of today, art that is absolutely cutting edge, and the competition is fierce. If you place an object in a museum, Mm. for instance, if we took your bag and placed it here, would that make it art? Ah. Okay. Her til efteråret præsenterer vi den argentinske kunstner og sociolog Lola Arias og hendes udstilling, som hedder The Square. Vi kan ikke som museum lade os skræmme af udtrykte overskredergrænser. Det kan vi ikke gøre. How often would you say that you take women that you don't know very well and have sex with them? You know their names? Yeah. So what's my name? Right, Palm Door winning film at the Cannes Film Festival last year. This is Ruben Usland, a Swedish filmmaker who did Force Majeure. And that was a film that got a lot of press inches and a lot of people talking because it was quite a compelling uh, sort of humanistic fable, I guess. It's about a father with a family who's trekking in, I think, the Alps. And when there's an avalanche or appears to be an avalanche or a warning or something, rather than 
try and save and help his wife and children, he just runs away, clearly trying to save himself. And unsurprisingly, uh, actually, the avalanche, avalanche doesn't come in quite that same way and his wife and kids are fine. But it's really driven a stake right through that happy family unit. And it's all about the awkwardness and uh, the shame that that, uh, that husband and father should feel and the lack of trust and the sort of surprise and horror that the family might feel. Really interesting concept, wouldn't you say? And so he's returned with The Square. And this film is slightly different. It's got a much broader focus. So rather than being razor sharp and about people and extrapolating from that, this goes the other way around and takes a very broad subject and tries to narrow it down through the course of the film. And that's because the film centres around this guy, Christian, played by Class Bang, and he is an incredibly stylish, cool, suave, but perhaps slightly shallow chief curator of a very high-class art gallery slash museum in Stockholm. It's not totally clear what it is. It's kind of fictional place that the government are involved in. And it's all about the way that he works with his colleagues, the way that he relates to modern art and expresses his love for it and its relevance in society. But then completely contrasted with the way he deals with very ordinary relationships and everyday life. So there's a huge amount of focus on the way that people uh, handle beggars on the streets or those with difficult circumstances. And the way that we talk about uh, people in these situations versus the way that we might interact with them in real life. And the sort of flashpoint for this, the inciting incident, is that uh, Christian is the victim of a bit of a sting in public. He thinks he's helping someone out, but it actually reveals that his wallet and his phone have been stolen. And he and one of his cool artsy mates at this uh, art gallery concoct a plan that basically goes wrong and has myriad consequences from that point on. So on the surface, it's dealing with all sorts of things. It's dealing with the veneer of society and uh, humanitarianism. It's also looking at modern art as a concept and how we appreciate it. And the you know, and that's an old idea, isn't it? Is there uh, perhaps a bit of pretentiousness in that world? Is it all just a bit of fluff? Or is it actually really serious and relevant in society? And how do all these things intermingle? And at the core of it, what does it mean to be a person who is functioning in the world, useful in the world, and actually of value to the people around them. Let's forget these big ideas and let's talk about real people. I quite enjoyed it. I found it really funny. I found it overly long. I thought that Class Bang was brilliant. And wow, I mean, that guy is well-dressed and <laughs> handsome in this film. I was, you know, I was taking notes. He was wearing like suit jackets with scarves that weren't even tied around his neck because he's that cool. Uh, and, and there's a lot about the aesthetics that really, really works. And it, it's a fun environment to be in. But you can't escape the darkness and the cynicism that's really at the heart of it and it shouldn't be a surprise given the source from Ruben Usland. It definitely is overlong and a lot of people say that because it takes that sort of a reverse approach and starts broad and tries to get narrow, that some people accuse it of trying to tackle too much so that it doesn't have much focus and overall I think I agree. I, I think it's directed in such a way that it gives a lot of space to all these elements and very rarely feels targeted and if you're not sort of fully committed to watching this long film then you are going to be left by the wayside a little bit. And you'll probably, no matter, if you do watch it, even if you have kind of lost contact with the film a little bit, there is one particular scene that brings everyone into razor sharp focus. And it's the one that's on all the publicity photos. Uh, it's this guy who's a performance artist entertaining a very high class range of sponsors for this art gallery uh, by pretending to be an ape. And, uh, he's actually one of the performance capture actors from War of the Planet of the Apes, so he does a terrific job. And that is an interesting scene. 
So I'm going to say, if you've got any interest in art house cinema, you really should watch it because it's right at the top of the list. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and I think it's enjoyable, but there are certainly a lot of people who are going to find it slightly tedious, and I don't know that I can wholly recommend it because it is a bit slow. But there you go. Let's move on with Disney's A Wrinkle in Time. Close your eyes. See with mine. You were a top student. But look at you now. You can't keep using your father's disappearance as an excuse to act out. Is that his work? What's it about? Their dad, he wanted to touch the stars. Imagine that the ant here wants to get to her other hand. The quickest option is to walk across the street. But it turns out a straight line is not the shortest distance between two points. Not if you use a fifth dimension. It's outside of the rules we know of time and space. So the ant arrives in my hand instantaneously. So you fall to space. More likely wrinkle it. heard a cry out in the universe. My father's alive. We believe he is, and we're here to help you find him. We are in search of warriors. Warriors who serve the good and the light in the universe. You're kidding. Do I look like I'm kidding? A little. I'm not. I'm not. Your father's trapped by an evil energy. It's too strong for our light. And the only one who can stop it is you. Be a warrior. My love is always there, even if you can't see it. Do you trust me? I trust you! Well, I don't know how much intro I need to give for this one. The trailer will have done a reasonably good job. Ava DuVernay is directing this, and she did Selma a while ago, which is one of those uh, sort of bio films. Well, not really a biography, because it's more about an event. It's a march uh, that it was part of the big civil rights movement in America. And she's been gradually ascending through the ranks of American directors, uh, impressing people with documentaries and other short films. And Selma, of course, was Oscar-nominated. And so Disney have given Ava DuVernay $100 million to make an adaptation of this Madeleine Lengel novel uh, back from the 1960s into a big blockbuster film that is supposed to be hitting the mainstream. And I've got to be honest with you, listeners, I don't think it works really on any level at all. Uh, I think it's sort of a catastrophic failure when you consider the money and the hype surrounding this film and that's a great disappointment to me uh, so you, you will have heard there in the trailers you've got uh, this girl Meg who's very clever doesn't fit in wants to know what's happened to her dad who's played by Chris Pine she's got a good relationship with her mother played by Gugu Mbatha Raw who I think is brilliant in the film by the way and a good relationship with her brother Charles Wallace but everyone else at school everything else people seem to not like her so there's obviously right from the get-go a massive part of this film which is all about identity and who you are and how you fit. And straight away, I, I don't know that that really fits the rest of the story. And it does feel very American high school. You know, there are so many films that do that and have done it well. 
you know, can this film, does this film really want to be about that or does it want to be about something more interesting? Because the whole folding dimensions to move through time really fast and the whole family dynamic situation, you know, is her father, played by Chris Pine, actually just a layabout who's left the family and lied to them about maybe disappearing into another dimension? Or is he the real deal? And similarly, when these interdimensional beings, uh, and that's Reese Witherspoon's Miss Watsit, Mindy Kaling's, oh, what's she, Mrs. Who, I think, and then... Uh, Oprah Winfrey's Mrs. Witch will come to them later. When they turn up, you know, what are they? Are they guardian angels? Are they fairy godmothers? Or do they represent something within Meg? There are all these interesting questions about it. But basically, the film avoids everything that's interesting and instead focuses entirely on Meg, played by Storm Reed. And I think that's to the film's detriment, really, because there's not really enough substance there to make it interesting. There are so many other films that deal with who you are and where you fit in the world that do it a lot better. And while there are some good flashpoints, everyone talks about a moment where uh, Meg meets her father at one point, then that is well acted and well played. You know, despite these nice little moments, the rest of the film is an abstract mess. I think kids will find it boring, perhaps a bit scary, and they just won't connect with it on any level, except for the moments where they recognise things at school or whatever. But there's no excuse for that. You know, the whole film is supposed to be for kids. I think the special effects are really impressive, and that's there's your $100 million budget. And I do think they work, and they're fantastical, but they're really not relevant at all, because every new world or situation these kids get into, they don't really express very much wonder. And it isn't really about these places because it's all about Meg and who she is and her problems and all that sort of stuff. And and that really extra relegates these three people, Mrs. Witch, and What's It, as I mentioned earlier, into being terrible foils and platitude-driven kind of wastes its time. It's really, really annoying and, and none more obviously than Oprah Winfrey. And a lot of people, you say Oprah's great and she has acted well in the past, but she's still Oprah Winfrey. And when you've got a film which is all about identity and light and dark and love versus wickedness and all that sort of stuff, you can't escape the fact that it feels like the content that Oprah would love to have on her show. And so when she appears as the biggest and most powerful and mysterious of these three beings, you can't help but feel there's a bit, something a bit annoying going on here and there's way too much reverence given to Oprah because of her presence off the screen. And it really jars with everything. And, you know, the, the, the ultimate touch point for me that really revealed the way this film is done is that there's a moment where Oprah is absolutely gigantic and they've gone to this wonderful, beautiful world with green grass and beautiful flowing rivers and Reese Witherspoon turns into a big leafy thing that flies all the kids around and there's a moment where on Reese Witherspoon's leafy monster they sort of swirl around Oprah and go right past her absolutely gigantic face and Charles Wallace this tiny boy strokes her cheek as he goes past and she sort of smiles as if this is a, a really wonderful moment of joy that's very moving and I laughed listeners I thought it was abs- absolutely ridiculous and then Oprah sort of watches on and gives them a nod and like you go get him guys and obviously Obviously, Ava DuVernay and the filmmakers think this is a great moving moment. I just thought it was ridiculous. It was like no one was stepping outside of their little bubble and saying, hang on a minute, what's happened here? You know, sort of ringing bells with me with the whole Princess Leia as Mary Poppins thing. Like in that sort of intense arena of making the film, this stuff maybe seems powerful. But to audiences, I think on the most part, they're going to think it's ridiculous. Uh, So final thing to say, and it's a shame, really, Ava DuVernay, I don't think she's got a great sense for a scene in uh, certainly not a kid's fiction film. I think she's done great work with documentaries and with Selma in particular but I was thinking for a long time the script to this film is really poor but actually when I sort of thought about the script and thought about different ways you could shoot the scene actually it wasn't that bad. The problem was that Ava DuVernay was shooting stuff 
so that it felt awkward. You know, a line that was maybe should have been funny or maybe should have provided some kind of impetus or dynamic instead was often very flat because she shoots everything in this shaky cam close up with a lot of uh, soft focus and depth of field. So it's more like uh, a music video, whereas what you really need is space for these kids to feel like real kids not like deep emo sort of soul searches the whole time. And I was I was really frustrated because I think there was potential here and it's got completely wasted. Best thing in the film is uh, Michael Pena's Puppet Master. I'll leave it there. Okay, there's a wrinkle in time, so a disappointment for me. I'd love to know your thoughts on that one. Let's move on to Pacific Rim Uprising. We were born into a world at war. Between the monsters that destroyed our cities and the monsters we created to stop them. We thought we had sacrificed enough. But the war we thought we finished is just beginning. And the only thing standing in front of the apocalypse is us. But it doesn't matter where you came from, who believed in you and who didn't? This is our time. This is our chance to make a difference. Now let's get it done. That's what I'm talking about. If you watch Pacific Rim, you know, this film's not straying too far away from it. I can't quite believe that it was Guillermo del Toro who made the original Pacific Rim. But the more I looked into that, the more it it began to make sense because the the whole thing about drift compatibility, and if you've never seen it, let me explain. You've got these giant robots uh, called Jaegers taking on giant monsters called Kaiju who are emerging out of the Pacific Rim, hence the title. But to pilot these massive robots, because there's a huge amount of mental strain, you need two pilots. Uh, kind of acting as one unit. So they have to share their thoughts and emotions and feelings and past and everything else. And so they can act in complete unison as one sort of unit. And that's a really interesting concept. And I can see why that would appeal to Guillermo del Toro, because it gives a really interesting depth to this ludicrous scenario that's entirely to do with human communication and understanding and acceptance and also tackling demons and everything else. So it's a really bizarre, kind of interesting emotional depth. The question is, does that sort of odd cocktail, which bizarrely worked the first time, work in the second? And the answer is not really, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Number one that I loved here, John Boyega. So annoyed about him being shafted in The Last Jedi, kicked to the side. He gets a proper starring role here, and he gets to do it with his British accent. And I thought, he's brilliant. The guy is charming. He's got a great sense for comic timing. He can really 
really hold the camera with charisma and presence and he just works with all the different cast members he's put up against and he's got you know a lot of different people to work with he's got this woman Mako uh, who is sort of a noble uh, almost mother slash sister figure for him he's got this young girl uh, what's her name I think she's called Kaylee Speeney or something like that it's her debut who's a, a, a tough sort of delinquent but also a fiery spirit and he has to relate to her like an older brother and then he's got his mate uh, Nate Lambert played by Scott Eastwood who's playing the all-American sort of hotshot Captain America type figure that he has to relate to as a rival but also kind of a best mate and maybe an older brother and the thing is the director and the filmmakers obviously have a lot of confidence that John Boyega can handle all of those different relationships set against the backdrop of enormous green screen gigantic robot action as well so you know if you had any doubts about John Boyega's talent this is a film that really should shout it at you despite its obvious blockbuster trappings Uh, but that said the rest of it you know, I really love the beginning because the first 10 minutes is a fast action sequence. John Boyega is a bit of a delinquent guy and he has to rediscover his roots because he's the son of the Idris Elba character from the Pacific Rim in the first place, who is a military hero. People expect a lot from John Boyega, but he doesn't want to give it, especially now that he believes the war is over, blah, 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 blah. So there's a lot of scenes in a junkyard where he's being a cool thief, basically. And I thought they were really nicely shot and edited. There was a huge amount of pace. There was good tension. There was mysterious relationships. And I really love the mix of practice practical sets and CGI effects it felt very grounded and the scale unbelievably because of how huge the difference is actually worked I believe these tiny people were relating to these absolutely gigantic machines so the first 10 minutes gave me a bucket loads of hope the problem is the film never lets up in its pace and doesn't really change its style throughout the whole runtime. So you get dramatic scenes that feel cut together like action scenes. And it it is a whirlwind pace where they talk nonsense and give bizarre exposition. And you just kind of have to run with it. So that the film never decides whether it wants to be about raw recruits or whether it wants to be about corporate corruption and cynicism or whether it wants to be this story about the emotional uh, heft of the whole drifting thing, two people sharing one mind, all that. It, it doesn't have time to deal with any of that because it rockets on. And so that, you know, in that way, it sort of reminded me of the odd uh, junkyard aesthetic 90s sci-fi thrillers, a bit like The Fifth Element, uh, which kind of move frenetically and crazily and you just have to keep up or be left behind. But it's not quite as deftly done as that. And that's partly to do with the fact that it's Stephen S. Knight, And this is, I believe, his directorial debut. He's more a screenwriter. And interestingly, he has been part of the writer's room, I think, for the Transformers franchise. And I, I really actually think you can see that in this film. You know, Pacific Rim, I think, was almost an impressive feat because despite its content, it didn't feel anything like Transformers. And this new film... I think possibly marks a departure where they're trying to grab some of that success. Like some of the low panning sort of spinning shots and the saturated colour palette will probably remind a lot of people of the overwhelming Michael Bay style of those films. I think the heart is a lot stronger in this one, but it's an interesting transition. And, you know, the film is absolutely trying to set up a franchise. So I wonder whether that's what they're aiming for, that they're going for lucrative success rather than emotional resonance, depth or anything particularly interesting. But nonetheless, you know, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. Uh, This guy, Bern Gorman, who's playing, uh, well, can I call him a mad scientist for the sake of ease? I quite liked him. He had good screen presence. Um, He's in Man in the High Castle, so I think he's going to be a very recognisable face fairly soon. I think if you're in the mood for an action, silly graphics spectacular, go see this. Definitely better than The Last Jedi. Just putting it out there. Okay, let's do Unsane. Your life slips away from you, you know? Changing your phone number and your 
email becomes normal. Taking out our restraining order, normal. Relocating to another city, normal. But you still see your stalker everywhere? Rationally, I know this is my imagination, but I'm alone in a strange city and I never feel safe. There's some more forms you need to fill out. It's just routine. I finished my homework. Sawyer Valentini, please follow me. Well, look, I, I don't have a lot of time. I, I should be back at work, so. What am I doing in here? Take off your clothes down to your underwear. I'm not sure what's happening here. The door's locked. It would be better for everyone, especially yourself, if you just do as I ask. There's been some kind of mistake. By signing this, you've consented to voluntary commitment. I am being held here against my will. Do you know how many calls the cops get like that every week? Those are from crazy people. It's all in my head. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know I'm quite a fan of Steven Soderbergh. I think he's really fascinating. And the way he's trying to shake up the movie industry, it's kind of incredible that he's managing to do it. So he's come out of retirement a couple of times to make odd projects. Logan Lucky was the last obvious one. And he did all that in interesting ways financially. So he did a lot of pre-selling and a lot of wrangling and stepping outside of the studios. So despite the fact the box office wasn't huge for that film, I think financially it wasn't a failure. It's a really interesting sort of thing to look into if, you, if you're interested in the machinations of the industry. And well, let's just say he's at it again. So in this case, Unsane, the number one sort of thing that's going to draw people to it, maybe not for good reasons, is the fact that it's all shot on iPhone 7s. Can you believe it? And... That is obvious right from the get-go. You will recognise the odd aesthetic, the lack of sort of soft focus or interesting camera work, and instead you see the fisheye thing and you see the flat depth. But it really is a huge testament to Steven Soderbergh that you forget it quite fast. And if anything, it enhances the film. Some of the shot angles he uses emphasise different parts of the people or the layouts or the sort of emotional content of the scene so that it really boosts what's going on. And then you get the story of the film and there's slight appropriateness to it. So Claire Foy is this woman who's a successful, slightly cutthroat, uh, I think, finance person, but she's got a set of fears that she worries might be taking over because she believes she's had a stalker and that that's affecting her ability to have relationships and to work properly in the world. So she goes to have a short consultation with someone at a clinic during a lunch break or something like that and explains this stuff, and they press her to give some details. And without realising it, she accidentally signs up to be committed to this institution for people struggling with mental health issues. And she doesn't want to be there, and she tries to get out, but they're saying, well, you signed it, so you need to be here, and obviously you do have a problem, and we want to help you with this problem. And so there's a big question 
question right from the beginning. Is this just an insurance scam and is this mental health institution actually kind of wicked and evil and causing problems? Or is it the case that Claire Foy is unreliable and actually maybe she does have some problems? Maybe she is hallucinating and imagining all this stuff. And that only gets amplified by the fact that while she's in this institution that she can't escape from, the person she says, her her stalker, she says is there. She meets someone and she says, this is the guy, he's followed me here and now I can't escape. What are you going to do about it? And so you can see how the iPhone thing kind of fits into that. There's a sense of surveillance and and voyeurism and the uncomfortable closeness uh, and intimacy of uh, iPhone camera footage, all that sort of stuff. But I overall, I do think the iPhone thing is still a bit of a gimmick. If I move on to the actual film, I really quite liked it. I think, you know, the question about is Claire Foy's character sane or insane um, or unsane, whatever you want to call it, is not, it, it, although it's the sort of headline for the story, it's not really the centrepiece and it, it moves away from it quite quickly to become a genre piece with quite standard genre thrills quite fast. But I still enjoyed it. I was gripped by it. I thought it was alternately horrifying and kind of enjoyably tense. And I really felt that Claire Foy's performance was amazing. Lots of you guys might have seen her in The Crown, where she's playing Queen Elizabeth II, but actually the last thing I saw her in was Breathe, alongside Andrew Garfield, where she plays a very stiff, up, stiff upper lip, but compassionate, a sort of a British wife from the 1960s, I think it is, or even earlier than that. But she is totally different here. Flawless American accent, and they really use her sort of look. She's got these huge eyes and an intensity to her expressions to amplify everything that's going on here. And I, I thought she had a lot of toughness and uh, power throughout the film. And I, I really like the way it was scripted because there are sort of she takes no prisoners throughout the whole thing. There's no uh, holding back from any of the sort of emotions that might be expressed or uh, any of the kind of anger and violence that might be expressed through language as well as action as well. And I really thought she was a perfect choice for the role. And now you'll see, if you look around, you'll see lots of people debating about whether this is a feminist film or not and whether it's empowering or not. You know, I I don't really know what to say on that one. I think you can kind of read it lots of different ways. My overall feeling was that I enjoyed the fact that Claire Foy, despite the situation she's put into, uh, is very strong character throughout and attempts to solve the problems herself. So she's not waiting for someone else to deal with it all for her. So, that, and, and I did kind of think, wow, you know, this is a real showcase of what it might be like for someone to experience unwanted and inappropriate male attention. And it was uncomfortable for that reason. So I found it interesting in that dynamic, but you might feel very differently. And I know a lot of people do. Uh, so yeah, I think probably recommended if you're up for a nervy thriller with a bit of a gimmick with the iPhone shot and a wonderful performance from Claire Foy. Let me know what you think on that one. Uh, and lastly, can you believe it? Here we go. We've made it all the way through to number 10, The Third Murder. <laughs> ダメですよ、重森さん。僕みたいな人殺しにそんなこと期待しても。
Well, Hirokazu Koreeda is one of my favourite filmmakers making stuff right now. I've gone on and on and on about I Wish and After the Storm, both brilliant family dramas that I absolutely loved. And he has gone for a bit of a departure here. The Third Murder is very much a legal drama that is to do with how hard it can be to really identify the truth and the extra question, which is, is the truth the most important thing uh, in the legal system when it comes to convicting people, sentencing, all that sort of stuff? It's an interesting film. It's a slow film. I think if you don't really like subtitles, this definitely isn't for you. And if you like films to be quiet and calm, but to move forward quite fast, this possibly isn't for you either, because it plays with everything. You see the backgrounds to every character. You know, this the lawyer who's taking the case of someone who has murdered um, uh, or, or confesses to have murdered someone anyway, has a family and he digs into the background of this guy who's confessed to the murder and their families and suddenly he gets embroiled in all kinds of conflicting and twisting personal relationships, totally differing accounts of the truth. You know, the most obvious case in this one being that the guy who's confessed to the murder changes his story every time they talk to him. And so this guy, the lawyer, starts out saying, well, I'm a professional, the job, my job is just to get the best possible sentence to my client, maybe avoid the death penalty, and the death penalty is referred to a lot here. But over the course of the film, you know, is he actually going to be consumed by the need to know what really happened? Is he really as callous and detached as that as to just treat this as a professional exercise or does he start to care about the morality of the situation and all situations and there's a lot of resonance for him with his own family situation with the case of the murder so i enjoyed it and i find the legal system really fascinating i thought it was admirably realistic and he's uh, the director has spoken about how he spent a lot of time sitting through legal proceedings and talking with uh, lots of lawyer friends about the way that arguments are put forwards the kind of language and the kind of systems and it really is fascinating and i guess there's possibly a big case here for the fact that Maybe he doesn't support the death penalty and wants to ask questions about whether that's really appropriate, given the way that these things often shake down. But it also has broader psychological, philosophical implications. I mean, that's all I really need to say. I quite enjoyed it. It's got um, the Corrado's trademark style. It's really beautifully done, very subtly done. If that sounds good to you, then I would watch it and enjoy it for what it is and you muse on the, the things it brings up. But basically, I, I don't think it's one for lots and lots of people because it is quite slow. Oh man, right, time to take a big breath. Thank you so much if you stayed with me right through to the end of this 10 review marathon. I'm looking at the clock and it's about an hour. And what is that, about uh, six minutes per review? I'm not sure if that's really fast enough. I think I need to up my game. Uh, But if you have watched any of those or you want to ask questions or make comments on anything I've said, then send your email to superbabybros at gmail.com or you'll tweet to at superbabybros. And in a couple of weeks, we'll come back to it all and recap and I'll press fill. Uh, on any of these films if he's managed to see any of those 10 then I'll get his thoughts as well Uh, but obviously by that point we'll have loads of great stuff to review Uh, I've seen Love, Simon and Death Wish both out in a couple of weeks so look look forward to it speak to you in a couple of weeks and don't forget tune in at 12pm on Easter Monday 2nd of April to BBC Radio Oxford and you can hear Phil and I chatting away we're really looking forward to it had a great practice last night I think it's going to be a lot of fun and we would love you to listen and to get in touch by email email, text, tweet, phone, whatever. Brilliant. Okay, have a great week or a couple of weeks, guys. Speak to you again soon. Bye.